Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses worked your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Welcome back. Prom party. Hello. I hope you're all doing wonderfully. The world's on fucking fire again, so. It's, it's never stopped being on fire. Yeah, it really, really hasn't. Like, we have these moments where we think the fire is out, and then, like, the wind kicks up, and then suddenly it's just flames. It's cool. We're in California. It's normal. Oh, God. Everything's going to be on fire in, like, two months, and we'll just <laughs> accept it. I wish that people can see the fact that you definitely just tried to check the time on your arm watch, but you're not even wearing a watch. I haven't owned a watch in, like, 20 years. I don't think I've ever owned a watch. My parents bought me one because every strapping young lad is supposed to have a watch, I guess. All right, that's fair. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah, and I stopped wearing it when I was like nine, ten years old. <laughs> Why does like a nine-year-old need a watch in the first place? To come home for dinner? I don't I don't know. I, Where sure. do I have to be? I don't have work. <laughs> I don't have appointments. Yeah, you don't gotta keep a schedule. No. <laughs> well, speaking of schedules, we're uh Introducing something a little different today and really excited about it. We also have a guest. Um, so I would like to introduce you all to just someone that is so important to the both of us. He is a actor, a producer, a podcaster, a wrestling aficionado, the host of the only show that I would ever recommend people listen to in which their dad calls their children a bunch of assholes. Uh, from the Why Did We Ever Meet podcast and from Deep Within My Heart, we have Mr. Wes Allen. Hi. Hi, guys. Uh, hello, Wes. It feels so. It feels like it's been so long since we talked, but it was like a week and a half ago. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys were just on our show, and uh, yes, I obviously echo those sentiments uh, on, on Why Did We Ever Meet, but yeah, this is... Uh, it. I, I'm glad to finally be on. We knew we'd be on each other's shows eventually and mm -hmm. uh, I think this is the exact right reason to be on. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. Uh mm -hmm. Wes, for those who don't know you, uh what mm -hmm. is sort of your history with writing about film cuz you've kind of been around forever but mm -hmm. you don't like it's not your your full time anymore. So people might no. not know who you are, what you've done, what you're interested in. So if you want to sort of give people an idea of like what makes Wes Allen, go for it. Yeah, I uh, I wrote in the ancient tomes uh, <laughs> when they printed shit. Um, I, <laughs> I, uh, I started out as a teenager, uh, played in punk rock and hardcore bands, um, 
and uh, wrote and wrote, you know, started like writing little zine things. And that carried into college uh, where I half ass majored in. Uh, well, more so what I like to say is I I uh, majored in drugs and failure and minored <laughs> in English and writing. <laughs> so the normal college experience. Yeah, yeah. Plus bands. So that all uh, that all worked out really well. Um, <laughs> uh, wrote for like I've always been a huge film fan. Discovered horror as a kid, which leads to cult and exploitation film. And freelance wrote, did all kinds of shit. Uh, I started a website several years ago called The Blood Sprayer, which is kind of how BJ and I became friends in the horror blogging community. It's all it was it was this giant circle jerk of friends that like wrote for, wrote on each other's stuff and uh and that sort of and the, as bj can tell you there's this weird trajectory for most of us that started out writing about these movies and then we fuck around and start writing the movies and we start acting in the movies and we start producing the movies and then we fucking hate the movies and then you come <laughs> full circle <laughs> and you love movies again and and you talk about them on podcasts so outside of that you know i'm uh i first and foremost what i always say is i'm a husband and a dad and then all the other shit comes after that but uh horror films it started with texas chainsaw massacre for me and uh you know it ends somewhere in you know i Robert Altman and Paul Schrader and John Waters and Saijin Suzuki and Russ Meyer and, and all the, all the wonderful perverts that, uh, that have laid the foundation for the fucking thing we're going to talk about today. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was, this was a trip, wasn't it? <laughs> and that's also kind of w one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because obviously this show is both, celebratory and critical of the mm -hmm. teen movie genre and mm -hmm. teen movies from the 80s are sort of a breed of their own and obviously neither of us were around during that time so we gotta i was <laughs> we gotta call in favors from our old friends to uh <laughs> to talk about these movies yeah <laughs> but more importantly um what we're going to start doing seasonally here at the Sunset Prom is we want to pay honor and respect to somebody who loves and also hates these films, I think, as much <laughs> as we do. <laughs> um, yeah. So a, a good friend of both Wes and I's and a friend to the world of film Mm -hmm. is a man named Mike McPadden. And Mike, a lot of people know him, you know, as McBeardo, uh, just one of the biggest champions for dismissed cinema out there. And also the author of an incredible book called Teen Movie Hell, which if you are a fan at all of these types of films, that is the Bible, honestly. Yes, yes. It is one of the most complete I almost want to say it's an encyclopedia of of yeah, teen yeah. of, of teen movies, and mm -hmm. Mike brings not just this academic background of knowing a lot about these movies, but also the writing is really fun and mm -hmm. is just as entertaining as some of these movies that, for so many people, have been dismissed or pushed aside or viewed as unworthy. And Mike Mike appreciates these movies. And there was no one else I could think of that I wanted to be the first of 
our seasonal adventure into teen movie hell than you. So if you want to take a couple minutes and sort of just speak on Mike, uh, your relationship or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. why you find this important, the floor is yours. Yeah. So uh, and like you said, I I think encyclopedia is a great word. I I refer to this. I refer to teen movie hell and his other book, uh, Heavy Metal Movies as the definitive directory of of this this niche subgenre in cult film and mike just a, a background for people that do may may know of mike but but do not know mike for me mike wrote happy land which was this which was a zine that i remember picking up in a, a local record store here uh, in in northwest ohio and that's where I first discovered Mike. Mike was this like chaotic, enigmatic writer who who wrote with such a like funny, visceral edge, like true. Like we use the word edgy a lot and we're using it in a negative connotation. Mike was Mike's writing and his approach to writing, particularly back then and even carried into his later years. He was edgy, but in the right way. It was mm-hmm. it was it teetered this line of like. I, this is, this isn't mockery. This is a sincere opinion on this subject and it's going to come at you fast and furious with, with a lot of self-deprecation, but also like it, a blunt force. And Mike has been this, like you said, he's a champion of dismissed cinema. He believed in it and even the shittiest movies that he didn't like. But the best thing about Mike was that he was this established writer that all of us in our generation looked up to and Mike didn't have to give any of us the time of day. And he absolutely fucking did. He, he encouraged us. He, he would get behind things And my relationship with Mike started when I reached out to him to do an interview because he was somebody that I really looked up to and admired. And I reached out to him to do an interview and he he turned it down because he didn't want to rehash. He was at a point in his life where he didn't want to rehash certain subjects. But from that moment on, he was my friend. He supported everything I did. He I interviewed Jimmy McDonough, who wrote uh, he wrote book he wrote a book about Neil Young, uh, a really great book about Russ Meyer, and he also wrote a book about Andy Milligan. And I loved that book and I got a chance to interview Jimmy and it just so happened that Mike adored Jimmy and adored that book. And Mike for years promote, sent that interview to people and would, would constantly, you know, years past its release was sharing it with people. And every, every record that I'd put out in the time that I knew him, he supported it. Any movie I was a part of, he supported and, you know, we talked about things we would message about, you know, like weight loss and and uh, and uh, mental health and, you know, and and uh, plant based diets. And uh, and Mike, even when we screened uh, the movie that BJ and I did Powerbomb in Chicago, Mike couldn't come to the screening that night, but he came out to the pop up shop convention that it was a part of just to hang out and visit with me. Like mm-hmm. that's the type of human being he was. He didn't have to support people, but he did. And he encouraged all of us. He encouraged, I know BJ, he encouraged you at a young age, like fucking mm-hmm. chase this. And mm-hmm. who else was encouraging our generation? You know, like without any, you know, and he did it without any, he did it without, 
any sort of like nefarious uh, meaning behind it. Like he did it in a, a genuine way where he was just like, yeah, guy, you guys fucking go for it. And I, I losing him was, was something that a lot of people were, were crushed by. Uh, and for good reason, like he just, he was like larger than life is such a hacky fucking thing to say about somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would say that, but he was, he was, he exceeded, like he lived beyond that. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be a part of the memorial service and it was beautiful. Like, like all of the wonderful things that people said, like there was this reoccurring theme of like his humility and his sense of humor and his honesty were like the favorite fucking thing that everyone had about him. And just, just a, a great fucking dude. And, I think I can think of no better way to pay homage to to McBeardo than <laughs> to than to talk about this. There was no other movie when you asked me what movie from from Team Movie Hell. It w- I didn't even fucking hesitate. I knew exactly <laughs> the one I wanted to do. And, so, uh, so what's, what movie one. is that? What movie are we talking about today? We are going to watch the Boaz Williams classic, The Last American Virgin. <laughs> now, Harmony. <laughs> what was your knowledge or anything about this movie before we watched it? Uh, so there's a couple things. Uh, one, this movie is not available anywhere at all, so we had to physically <laughs> buy it. So that's your Patreon dollars hard at work. <laughs> uh, two, the only other thing I really knew about this movie preemptively is that, uh, I've probably talked about it on the podcast, but in case I haven't, is that uh, my time on the internet as like a, a late teen, it mostly involved talking to old men about music <laughs> that was older than me. And this was constantly brought up as one of like the best movie soundtracks to like feature licensed music. Yeah. And yeah, no, I agree. And it's a good thing it's a soundtrack because every single song on here, except for U2, plays more than once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. So, Wes, since you brought this, rather than ask our friend Dango about the plot, I would love if you could explain <laughs> to our listeners what is the plot of The Last American Virgin? That's a great question. What <laughs> is the plot of Last American Virgin? Uh, for for uh, for lack of a better term, it's a it's it's a coming of age movie about desperately horny teenage boys who all they're thinking about twenty four seven is sex, and they're immersed in this world of hormonal chaos, and they they fit into all these weird. There are three main, I guess we'll call them protagonists at a certain to a degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll take a certain role in this, uh, but it comes down to, for some, losing their virginity. Uh, for others, it's falling in love. Uh, but but really, it, it's just, it's kind of about being, the best way I can describe it is it's trying to fit in in a horrible, horrible situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the best way, I, I, I think I texted this to you, BJ. I don't know who this movie's for. Right. See, and I'm I'm with you on this because this is a movie that I'm sure some people are going to look at us covering it and go, well, how is that a teen girl movie? 
but great question but like (laughs) i would i would argue that one of the biggest aspects of this film and why this film in my opinion is one worth revisiting has nothing to do with the boys and has everything to do with karen this love interest played by diane franklin and her story i think Mm -hmm. that like that alone is worth analyzing because in a lot of these teen boy sex comedies there's not a lot of autonomy given to the female characters they just all sort of exist and karen is a full-fledged character with her own arc and her own wants and her own desires and she's also incredibly imperfect Mm -hmm. and this movie isn't afraid to let her be imperfect it's wonderful she's not she's not an archetype She's not a stock character. She's a real person. She's not a prize to be won by bickering friends. Yeah. Right. Don't strain your eyeballs. Hey, do you know who she is? Which one? The one with the streak in her hair? No, the other one, Turkey. I think her name is Karen. Karen what? I don't know. She just moved here about a week ago. Hey, can you find out where she lives? Sure, no sweat. For a small fee, I think I can find out. And there's also the other aspect that I I liked about this I made a note of is Karen is not, she's none of the archetypes of a teen movie. She's not the Rachel Lee Cook type character in, uh, what's the movie with Freddie Prinze? She's She's All all That. She's All That. She's she doesn't fit the like oh she's nerdy but if you take her glasses off look out like we're not getting any of that shit um, we're not getting the blonde bombshell thing uh, there's no perfection to her she's a flawed human and she has fallen in with the three dumbest fucking humans that have ever <laughs> walked the face of the goddamn planet. Every teen is dumb. That is just par for the course. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, trust me. I We had a whole situation this weekend where it was like, well, teenagers are fucking idiots, and that's the lesson we're learning here. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess for, for our Patreon supporters who get to listen to our teen boy movie minisodes, uh, the teen boy in question that Wes is talking about is his son, Cash, who's also the singer of the theme song for our ah. minisodes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So now you can put some voices together and understand how this weird familial unit all kind of <laughs> goes together. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, typically we dive in by talking about our, our lead woman in these movies, but we have to talk about these boys. So oh, let's- God. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about these boys. Harmony, how do you feel about uh, <laughs> about these just fools? Uh, about Gary, Rick, and David? Yes. Fucking well, Gary. Uh, <laughs> fucking Gary is right. God. Fuck, fuck it. Oh, God, I have so many thoughts about all of them. But, like, mm. just knock David out really quickly because he's the simplest one because he's not, like, at all in this love triangle. Uh, yeah. he's, he's, he's the chubby kid who wears way too tight shirts that have really silly things on him, like ducks and tacos. Yes. And he's got wicked Josh Peck energy. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know yeah. why David is stuck paying for everything anytime they go anywhere because Gary has a pizza job. Thank you. Fucking thank you. Like David's <laughs> the one forking out money. And I'm like, you got a fucking job, Gary. <laughs> Pony like, up. I noticed that when they left him with the bill, when they had to buy medicine for their crabs. And I was like, but why isn't Gary buying it? (laughs) 
But then he whips out his little notepad because he's keeping a fucking ledger of what these dudes are. Uh, I just, just want to tell him, like, David, up. you're not getting any of this paid back. No. Nope. Like, you're keeping <laughs> no. track of nothing. <laughs> no. no. There's no way. Not at all. But I don't – the thing is, like, I'm sitting there and I feel bad for him the whole time because, like, most of the movie he is just, like, the awkward chubby kid who falls down and is sweaty a lot. And then at the end it's like, hey, you put him in a Hawaiian shirt and he cleans up nice and he doesn't have to deal with any of the uh, – I will say fallout of the end of this movie, and he's That's, probably just going to be scot free with uh, with Victor or whatever, and just have their happy little lives. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I think honestly the big winner of this, there's two big winners in this movie in my opinion. I think I think David is a winner, and Victor's got a big old dong on him from what we've learned. So. Yeah, nine and a half whole inches. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, he's got. <laughs> He's got that going for him. <laughs> yeah, that scene, though, and I guess that's probably something to lead into when we talk about Gary and Rick, is that this movie is hella gay. So gay. <laughs> like, so gay. For anyone who hasn't seen this, because I know this is not the easiest movie to acquire, which is, you know, why it's good for, for teen movie hell, is that um, there's a conversation about, about dick size, because Victor's like, mm. oh, you're just jealous. You wish you had what I had. And then they all just whip their dicks out and start, like, fondling them to measure them and stuff like that and just in the, a locker room and it's not just like these three guys plus victor it's like the entire gym class yeah. is all the lining class. up just and there's like this scene of them just pitching tents in their underwear and all of these guys are like eye level with it measuring it and then also a debating like i'm not including your balls victor and he's like you don't have to measure it again i know what i've got so like they're sitting there debating with each other just hard as a rock at face level and no one questions it. It's so gay. It's great. I love when boys are this comfortable with their own sexuality. Agreed. Also, there was definitely something we were watching recently about the discussion about how to measure your dick properly. And someone Mm -hmm. was like, no, you lay your dick on top of the ruler and then you get an extra inch out. Of, oh, it was, it was Letter Kenny. Yeah. It was it was McMurray talking about oh, how he yeah. measures his dick <laughs> with, by laying the dick on top of the ruler, and you get an extra inch that way. And I'm like, no, that is cheating. See, I don't have one, so I've never had to do this. So this is like a whole new world to me. All right, we're gonna get into that. Okay? Yeah. Because okay. For, for, first of all, first of all, that scene starts with Victor looking through a peephole at the girls' sh- locker room while they're showering. Not uncommon. Pretty pretty standard eighties teen movie uh, sex pest stuff. Yeah, very Porky's, very Revenge of the Nerds. Absolutely. Yeah. But they they break up Victor looking through a hole in the locker room wall at the naked ladies so they can measure wieners. Yep. <laughs> it's a literal dick measuring contest. It's point a, point A. Looking at naked ladies, point B, knock that off. We got to measure your penis, Victor. Get in line. <laughs> the thing is, I feel like that's actually something that, like, teens today would do just to, like, bullshit. Oh, God. I mean, you guys know how your nephew is and his two best friends. Yeah. I've heard plenty of re- – well, you guys have heard some of it, too. Some oh, of yeah. the conversations are, are – uh, I mean, th- God bless them. They're very comfortable with their sexuality, and they're very comfortable with who they are. And they like their gener Gen Z. Look, if we're learning anything, is this generation gets it. They're not looking at things in a in a in a stabled. You know, you're in this stable and you're in this stable. Everyone is everything, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. 
It also means that they say very sexually graphic things to each other without ever thinking about any recourse of like, hey, don't say that in public, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I feel like listening to their conversations is that scene in Trainwreck where John Cena's talking about licking asses. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's very much like that. <laughs> but I think what what I weirdly love about this movie is because you're right in that it is taking this trope that we see in movies like Porky's and Revenge of the Nerds, which we all, as a society, all agree have aged horrendously and are like super misogynistic like we we know these things we don't need to sit here and really dissect like well actually it's really bad to to be a peeping tom on women in the locker room yeah no shit like we we know know that we know we know but the fact that this movie is then going from that scene to exactly what you're talking about is like let's do this like male bonding thing but this male bonding thing also includes all of us having erections is Mm -hmm. so wild to me and The thing about The Last American Virgin is that everything about this feels so like American 80s sex comedy, but this mm. is not based on an American property. <laughs> no, no, it's uh there's an Israeli and I believe Israeli by way of West German film mm-hmm. series called Lemon Popsicle which I've never seen. I've ne- admittedly I've seen BJ can back me on this. I've seen a lot of weird hacky shit i've never seen i've never seen these i've always wanted to uh because i've always heard that this is what last america virgin is based on and i believe this is specifically uh a lot of it is mirrored after hot bubble gum which is one of the entries from what i understand in the lemon popsicle series but i also from what i gather there those movies take much harder turns than this one so in the research that I've done, the movies are based on the Lemon Popsicle series, which there are eight of them. This mm. is an incredibly popular series from Israel, and they've been remade uh, and dubbed in other languages, and they were huge globally except in America. Yeah. So the director was like, oh, well, they're so popular everywhere else. I'm just going to remake this for American audiences. And kept a lot of the sensibilities, i.e. this ending that we'll we'll get to, and was shocked when, like, Americans completely rejected it and were like, what the fuck is this? No. Um, but the, the movies are also based on what really happened in this director's youth. The situation with Karen really happened. And... <sighs> That's rough, like rough pumpkins. And, you know, we'll, of course, we'll get there. But it's really amazing to me that this is based on somebody's life because this movie is so off the walls where you just think they must have sat in a room and just thought, like, what is the most extreme stuff we can get away with? <laughs> and to know that this was just how people were out here just living life is wild. Jesus. That, the the very fact that, like, this shit is based on things that happened in his life. When this is, this is the pol- like the most polar extremes that you can find in teenage living. Like the most chaos. When you think of like, oh, did you hear about so and so? The real extreme cases in your high school. All of them are in this movie. Mm-hmm. Every single fucking one of them. And this motherfucker lived his life like this. Yeah. <laughs> This it's- is just day to day for old Boaz. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, you know, the heartthrob, I would say. Mm. Let's talk about Ricky. Oh, what's- Ricky. Yeah, what's going on there? Harmony, how do you feel about <laughs> Ricky and his 
popped collar and leather pants. Oh, Ricky's a dreamboat, isn't he? Walking around with like denim shirts with nothing underneath, just open chested. <laughs> oh, like he is so uh, he he he's a steamy a steamy young man who is boy, he sure is straight, isn't he? Oh God. So <laughs> So, so butch. <laughs> so listeners of the show may, may know this actor. His name is Steve Anton from other properties. Uh, you might know him from Troy in the Goonies, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. if you don't, if you're like, who's Troy? Uh, that's like the bohunk that Andy leaves uh, to be with Josh Brolin for. Yep. Um, so, you know, he's he's in there. He's also the titular Jesse in the Rick Springfield Jesse's Girl yeah. video. Um, and he's also a friend of Dorothy, which means that it makes perfect sense that he's also the director of Burlesque, starring Christina Aguilera <laughs> and Cher. But it is... Oh, it all checks out. But uh. it is, it's very important to, to note that because when you watch this movie, that is trying to be so aggressively hetero as a sex comedy, there are so many choices that are made that just read so gay. And a big part of it is because both actors, well, technically there's three of them because it's the actor who plays Victor, uh, the actor who plays Ricky, and the actor who plays Gary. All three of them are gay. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting to watch this movie knowing that because then everything kind of jumps out at you more. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think Gary or uh, Ricky is the one that it jumps out the most of because there's so many more mannerisms because he's the showboat of the, of the group. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there's, there's also that like, and there are things too, like, and look like the last thing your audience is looking for is some scorching hot takes from a cis hetero white dad. But I look at Ricky and Gary, and then I I look at it at, at years of I have I have an affinity for early gay porn guys like Casey Donovan who like were this like golden figure in film and made these made these incredible movies like Boys in the Sand that I I think personally have kind of altered the course of a lot of cult film have have played an influence whether directly or indirectly on cult film and how how uh, gay men are portrayed in cult film. But I look at how Ricky and Gary carry themselves. Like a good example to me is the argument they have in the library, Mm -hmm. which is supposed to be like a definitive macho hetero, like, oh, we're dudes fighting over chick thing. (laughs) Yeah. And I can't. I'm. I'm pretty sure between the three of us, I don't. I don't think any of us that that doesn't come across. Like that's no, <laughs> that's not the energy that's being put out there. And I think, like you're saying, it's fascinating to me that the those three characters who are prominent characters in the movie all happen to be gay men, because I think it it also. I I I don't know that it hasn't, but like I. I think it could find an audience, like a cult film audience, just in that. Like, hey, these were these guys were from the LGBTQ community, and we're playing the, these bonkers ass straight roles, like in this movie. That is, it's absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love for it to find a home all these years later amongst amongst that uh, that crowd. I'm with you on that one, especially because I think that you're right, and that gay porn did sort of dictate how yeah. homosexuality is presented in a lot of these cult films because cult films 
are where we allowed gay characters to actually exist. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you look at a film like this, which is clearly trying to tap into that very straight market. And because they are not bringing this like aggressive hetero energy, because it just is not within them to bring. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not who they are. It makes these characters to me so much more interesting. And I have -hmm. a lot more empathy for them because they, there's a lot more nuance to the anger that they're, that they're bringing. There's a lot more layered emotion with everything they do. And that includes when they are being pests, when they are being gross teenage boys. Yes. Yes. And Gary, Gary and Ricky specifically like that relationship, there is, um, I mean, as crazy as this movie is, there is emotional tension between them because they're supposed to be best of friends. Mm-hmm. And and that heartache exists between them over a girl in this movie. But take the girl out of that. Like there's an emotional tension between them that like I I I feel like is informed by who they are as people. And how they how they play those characters is how they're directed, but like you were saying, like this is who they are. They can't they it's going to come across that way and it's kind of you remove Karen from the situation. You do feel for those two characters. You have compassion for them because they seem like two very hurt young teenage boys. Gary and Ricky are hurt, are wounded deer. Mm-hmm. Gary is definitely uh, he is doing a lot less macho posturing. He's a, he's a bit yeah. more of a soft boy. So yeah. he definitely comes across as that more mm-hmm. directly in this film. Yeah. And I got to say that with, especially with the narrative of how, uh, how Gary goes through kind of avoiding or clumsily trying to lose his virginity. Mm-hmm. It definitely, the gay read of it is just, it becomes a lot more apparent and it makes it a lot more interesting, I guess. Like mm-hmm. when the moment where, you know, they're all paying to have sex with, uh, with a sex worker and Gary can't do it and he can't get it up and he ends up puking. And I'm like, wow, that's, that has a lot more meaning once BJ goes ahead and spills the beans in the middle of the movie for me that that actor's gay. Oh, <laughs> oh, you didn't know. You, you, BJ, you didn't tell her until about partway through? No. Nope. Because I, I was going <laughs> to wait until after, but I was like, no, I want her to know because I want to see if she can, you know, pick up on a lot of the same things that I have throughout yeah. the course of the movie because there's a lot of really interesting things that can be said about this movie when you have that knowledge. Similarly to how we discussed during our Pretty in Pink episode that if you go with the read that Ducky is closeted, it makes all of his actions a lot more understandable and somewhat justifiable with that Mm -hmm. fear. And I think the same thing can be said about this movie, especially when you look at somebody like Gary, who in the very, you know, first major hijinks scene, we have our three guys picking up three girls from what is like the coolest hangout restaurant I've ever seen in my life. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> why, like, why does that cool ass, I, that doesn't, it, it could only be in the movies. No fucking place was ever that cool in any of our teenage lives. No, but we weren't in LA, so that's probably part of it. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> like, it looks like the type of place that the bar in San Junipero on Black Mirror was modeled after. Just everything's outlined in neon. There's great music playing. There's just people mm-hmm. everywhere. Like, it looks so cool. Mm-hmm. But they, yeah. they take the three girls back to Gary's house because his parents are out of town. They convince them that they have cocaine. They don't. It's sweet and low, <laughs> but because they all 
are children, they all act like they're all high anyway, which is just so funny and a great teen thing. It's like how I think movies today, they do it more with like they'll give somebody like alcoholic, an alcoholic beer and people still act drunk. I think that's more mm-hmm. of the trope because drugs are drugs are scary now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the 80s, everyone was doing coke. So, you know, they're mm-hmm. pretending they have coke and it's sweet it, and low. It was the number one era for coke. Yeah. <laughs> you better think of something quick. Why the hell did you have to promise them drugs? Because that's what they wanted. Yeah, well, you shouldn't have promised them anything. Look, if I didn't promise them something, they would have never come, right? Yeah, well, what are we supposed to do now? Wait a second. You got any sweet and low? Here we are, girls. Best stuff in town. Yeah, fresh from Peru. And crispy chips. (laughs) One hit, and you'll be flying. But we have... You know, Ricky going off and doing doing his thing, having a good old time. We have David going off and having a fun hijinks setup of, of course, we're going to put the fat guy in his underwear and it'd be funny. Um, <laughs> so that goes on with him. He, he just stumbles into awkward situations half naked this whole movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now, almost every major plot point, he ends up in his underwear running away from somebody. Yeah. And someone's usually like throwing a shoe at him or hitting him with a pillow. Like there's... Poor David. Um, And then we have Gary, who is hanging out with the girl that I honestly relate a little too hard with, uh, Millie, who is the heaviest girl in the group, who knows exactly why she's here, who knows that she's getting picked last for the team, and could not give a single fuck. Like, she's just like, I know what you're here for. It's not going to happen. Just Mm -hmm. whatever. And Gary is so awkward around her. And you can make the argument like, well, she's really unapproachable. That's why he's awkward. When the reality is when he tries to take her bra off and she's just like, it's going to happen. It's fine. Just whatever. Mm-hmm. He can't figure it out. And it's this like panic thing. And the panic to me doesn't come from like, oh, I really got to see these boobs. I got to get this bra off. I think the panic read comes in as, oh, my gosh, but what does this mean that I can't get this off? What, oh, what does this say about me that I, I can't figure this bra out? That's yes. the panic face that I see with Gary. Absolutely. He's uh I the the whole movie is Gary Gary is terrified of sex. Like yeah. from the minute the opening credits start, Gary's terrified of sex. And and like your mention of Millie, like the great thing about Millie too is she said I believe she says like I don't care as mm-hmm. a response to everything. And Millie might be the most relatable person in the entire movie like <laughs> because she immediately is like, this is all bullshit. These guys are bullshit. You're my two best friends, and I think you're bullshit. Let, why are we going through this? What, what is this existence? Like, that's Millie's energy. And looking at her now as at 41, I look at Millie and go, Yeah, no, that's the right energy to have. None of this shit matters. (laughs) These people don't fucking matter. You're going to ditch them in a few years when you're in college and realize they're morons. Like, (laughs) there's the perfect energy to, like, who you become 25 years after high school is embodied in Millie. Gary embodies teenage teendom. He's terrified of sex. We we portray these, these horny barbaric macho characters in teen film deep down inside everyone is fucking terrified of sex when they're a teenager and gary's reaction is exactly what it should be i can't Mm -hmm. get this bra off there's so many other things attached to why this is wrong 
that's what being a teenager is. You're terrified of sex and afraid of everything that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as Gary goes, like comparing him to Ducky is a very apt comparison because he definitely gives yes. off John Cryer energy, especially because of our read that Ducky is 100% gay. Mm-hmm. But yeah. thinking about it, there was a discussion where John Cryer said like, oh, I don't want Ducky to get, be gay. Or there was a discussion where John Cryer said, oh, I don't want Ducky to be gay because that means that like, you know, straight guys aren't allowed to be like sensitive or fashionable or any of the things that Ducky embodies. And like, I agree with that. But at the same time, you get that from this movie where there's nothing nefarious about Gary's intentions with Karen. And I like that as, you know, the implication that this character is supposed to be straight. But the read is clearly like, oh, yeah, with the way the actor is and with how he carries himself, this becomes a whole different thing. And that is equally as respectful. I Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I, I feel like there's, there's empathy, there's empathy to be found in someone like, like Gary sucks. And they all do. That, <laughs> yeah, they all do. They all suck. And I, that was one thing I wrote down was like, Gary sucks. Then I wrote Karen sucks. Then I wrote <laughs> Ricky sucks. And then I was just like, whole cast sucks. Rose um, doesn't suck. Yeah. Rose is no, amazing. <laughs> Rose is the fucking standout. And, <laughs> and that has nothing to do with my, my utmost uh, reverent worship of Twin Peaks. It probably has a lot to do with it, but Kimmy Robertson is an angel, and I will hear no other opinions on that matter. I also but, love that Kimmy Robertson just has the most perfect voice of any oh sort God. of character. <laughs> yes. like Because for me, she will always be Kathy at the fax machine and don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Like, that's just of who she course. is. And of that's course. where she exists in my world before Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. But I loved seeing her in this. And she's got such great fashion. She's the character that I think, like, I wanted to be. Like, I'm definitely Millie, but I want to be Rose. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's that because Rose gives Rose is the only one that actually gives off any of that real. Uh, I don't want to say punk rock energy, but she's probably the only one that really, really puts that out there and and has the uh, has the look and the and the, uh, the 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 way she carries herself to match it. And Rose Rose should Rose could have got a really cool dude. Like in my mind, Rose could have landed Nick Cage's character in Valley Girl. Yeah, like that's, that's who Rose is. <laughs> Rose's style is, like, the only one who actually matches, like, the soundtrack of this movie. I agree, yeah. Because something that I kind of noted that in another movie would probably drive me crazy is that mm-hmm. all of the songs in this movie keep coming up over and over again. And it's, oh my God. it's almost absurd how many times some of these songs play, where it's like, okay, this is the third time we've heard this song in this movie. But <laughs> there's something about that that I love because... You now are taking these like, you know, top 40 hits and it makes sense that everywhere you go, you would hear them over and over again. Like mm-hmm. it's a hit song. That's how it works. And yeah. I didn't really think about that until I was hearing it at like their super cool hangout and going, oh, oh, I mean, I don't think that's the the goal, but that's what it feels no. like. No. And all of these other people are listening to it because they're popular songs. But Rose, Rose feels it. She lives that life. It's not a costume. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> 
and I can tell you exactly why those songs play over and over again in that movie. Uh, you can look no further than the opening credits to the two names attached to the executive producer spot, Golan and Globus, uh, who who were uh, notorious film producers in the 80s, uh, who uh, were cheap. <laughs> and uh, and uh, if they were going to pay for the rights to music, by God, you were going to use the shit out of that music the entire movie. And they did, because it never fucking stops. There's music playing the entire movie. Yep. <laughs> it, it borders on like the OG craft levels of just wall to wall, just needle drops. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't believe like there's a few of the songs that it is like four times shows yeah. up in the movie. Like it's wild. It's not a musical. These aren't, you know, we're not, this. it's not a reprise. It's, <laughs> Yeah, you're just going to get a random, are you ready for the sex, girls? Just like anytime there's anything sexual and you're like, really, again? We're doing this? Oh. Okay, we're doing this again. We need it teenage is, heartbreak. It... Better cue the journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Like, and the, the soundtrack is, you can't, you can't pull that shit off anymore because of how much it costs to license music. Oh, yeah. Like, uh -huh. you, could, you could never pull off getting the police and fucking you two on the same soundtrack unless you're Disney or whatever. No, but then again, we did learn that, like, in doing research for this, that U2 didn't really break in America until no. this movie came out. Yeah. <laughs> so these were, like, cheaper gets where it's like, oh, yeah, like, this is cool indie music, like, popular but not super popular vibes at the yeah, time. Yeah, mm -hmm. As is evident by the use of I Will Follow by U2. You know? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking, they're still post-punk U2. They're not pretentious political Bono U2 yet. Y yes, yes. It's, uh, and, like... I'll be honest, like as many times as I've seen this movie, I do love hearing that song in this movie. Is it because it's it, the only one that plays once? I Probably. <laughs> but that the one song, the real romantic one, it's not the Journey song. And I can't think of which one it is. It's like an R&B type song. The one that's like, I want you to want me. And then I keep thinking that it's going to go into a ballad version of Cheap Trick. Yeah, I think that is the song. I like... I you know I don't know if I I maybe have noticed it before, but rewatching it this week, I was like, "Fuck, that's a good song." Have I never noticed? That? <laughs> it is. <laughs> this shit is really good. That song has like big Lionel Richie energy too. Oh, major Lionel Richie yeah. energy. <laughs> I I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, they they're also really smart about the music in this because I mean, as we discussed earlier, David is sort of our 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 precursor to Josh Peck, like fat friend relief comedy character. Mm -hmm. And they even do that with sex because when we have the scene where they visit the, the Mexican nymphomaniac, because Carmela, Carmela, I love her. She's, <laughs> She's the best. <laughs> like, I have so many mixed feelings because on one hand, I'm like, you're incredible. Your fashion's incredible. Your the the way you communicate the with interior people, design is fantastic the interior design like she is everything but also you are fucking children and i have a lot of qualms with that agree yeah yeah that's weird yeah yeah it's super weird it's also just super weird how we normalized that in the 80s it was like it's totally normal when like grown women have sex with teen boys and it's just we still try to kind of normalize yeah, that yeah which is real gross it's like if you've ever read the comment section of like school teacher arrested for student relationship the comments yes. are atrocious. So I was it's, like, oh, is she hot? Did he get a good grade? Yeah, I totally would have had sex with my teacher if I could. It's the grossest. And like, that's all I can think about when I watch that scene. Whereas as much as it 
it's like I love this character and she's great. Oh, your moral uh, compass is yeah questionable yeah. and uh-huh. very broken. Yes, and that like, and you raised a good point too. Like, I think film had a lot to do with like, well, not film. I think that there's just this inherent brokenness in who we are as people and how we approach these sort of topics. But like that idea that like, Oh man, I wish I could have fucked my teacher. Like that's not, I have a son and a daughter. And if either one of them had some sort of weird sexual relationship with a teacher, I'd lose my fucking mind. Mm -hmm. I would go on a violent rampage because it's a child being taken advantage of by an adult. Mm -hmm. Either way you cut it. Mm -hmm. And like every 80s movie played into that trope, particularly these teen sex comedies. They really like that was something like even if it was a small scene like this is a big scene in the movie. And what's really funny about it. I don't know if you two noticed this. That scene's completely unnecessary to the story. Completely. It serves no purpose other than to just add another scene of these kids successfully having sex, except for Gary, who does not get to have sex. In that moment, because the yes. sailor comes because home, because the sailor comes yeah. home. But the two <laughs> things about that scene that are interesting is like when when Ricky has sex with her, it's presented as like he's kind of this Casanova, he's doing great. And then yeah. when <laughs> David has sex with her, it's like this big joke, and like the music changes and gets way more upbeat. And it, it's it's uh, that's the way I like it. Yeah, and it just feels really silly. And then, of course, you know, Gary's just sad and doesn't get to because the boyfriend comes home. But speaking on, like, the queerness, I texted this to you, Wes, but these, <laughs> these boys frequently share the same partner, and they are super comfortable with the idea of just, like... Yep. They're, they're churning butter yep. with their bro, you know? <laughs> yep, yep, they are, yep, they are... Those guys don't have a problem sharing gym socks. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so wild to me because it's, yeah, it, it it happens with with Carmella, but then it also happens with the sex worker, and it's like oh. they, they and like they they even assign each other like who's going when, and they're like, oh, you get to go first this time. Oh, nope, it's your turn to go first this time, and you're like, what? Why do you have a system for this? I mean weirdly kind of jealous i wish i had like a friendship that was that close but at the same time yeah yeah i don't have any (laughs) (laughs) and i never have and i count my friends as like very dear to me i have at no point in time nor would there have ever been a point in time where i'd be like you know what man we're all gonna have sex with the same person we're gonna do it in this order it's going to be a great experience for all of us who's in. Everybody put your hands in the middle of the circle. Like, that's not – there's no world where that that doesn't happen. Well, it probably does, but well, I've never, never been – You never had a good old-fashioned circle jerk with your bros? <laughs> not, that, not that I remember. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I – there – there's the there's a lot of shit that happens in this movie that like and it's granted we're talking about a teen comedy right but mm-hmm. there's some shit that happens that you I look at and go this is a weird inflated stereotype that has shown up as a trope it mm-hmm. became a trope in many movies that if you ask ten people 
all ten of them will go, yeah, no, I've no, I've never done anything like that. It's a really weird thing that I think stemmed from a lot of the '80s teen sex comedies. Mm-hmm. Is they gave these tropes to us and we just accepted them. And I, the best way I can compare it is when none of us knew what Abraham Lincoln sounded like, and then Daniel Day Lewis played Abraham Lincoln, and we all went, oh yeah, that's what Abraham Lincoln sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> uh, th- this is the same fucking thing. It's oh yeah, well that's yeah that that happens. No, it doesn't. These well, are the you don't know anybody that's done this. <laughs> yeah, we've actually um this this is something that we like is really weird about approaching eighties teen movies is that the genre of teen films didn't really catch a good foothold until the eighties. Yeah, where it became constant and there was like a steady stream of films that were actually about teens and catered towards teens. And so much of what we know about a teen movie was invented in this early 80s period. And yeah, you wouldn't question it because I guess it's like there's there's nothing else going on. There's no other option. So this is this is it, take it or leave it, I guess. <laughs> And this is a movie, too, that also came out in between Porky's and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Which so, is very interesting to me. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So, so two of the biggest teen movies of all time, for better or for worse, mm-hmm. one being, in my opinion, much better than the other. Um, is it, it's not Porky's, right? It, it's not Porky's. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> oh, wait, you didn't believe Porky's where there were 40-year-olds that we were we were to believe are, are 17-year-olds? I'm going to be real with you. Why. I've never seen Porky's, so I, I can't good. speak on this. You're good. You're okay, good. cool. Yeah, you don't need You're to. Good. Cool. We'll probably have to watch it for the Patreon at some point. If you like 40-year-olds playing uh, – imagine me being cast as a, a senior in high school. Full That's beard? you're going to get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know – why not? <laughs> if you were cast in a movie, I'd watch anything you were in, Wes. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> but, think- <laughs> but thinking about like why this movie didn't hit, I think is uh, entirely because of the Karen storyline and how Amen. how that ends. <laughs> so, Harmony, how do you feel about Karen, this beautiful Diane Franklin, who I was so excited to tell her is... Susie from Terrorvision. Oh, it blew my fucking mind. <laughs> because she's got seven wigs on in that movie, so you don't realize it's her because of her you iconic can't curly see, hair. Yeah. First of all, like, curly hair in the 80s like this didn't exist, mm-hmm. and it, I was just so delighted to see it because, she like, the, she... She has the best hair. Right? Especially because, yes. like, curly hair really didn't, like, find a footing until very recently, so, like, instances of it are so few and far between. Yeah. But... Aside from her name being Karen, that wasn't her fault. She didn't choose that name, and it was a different time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Karen is very, very sweet, but not necessarily, um, as we see in the ending, uh, the perfect dream girl that most movies frame the like female romantic lead as in this genre. Mm-hmm. And because of her and her circumstances the weird parallel that i like about this movie is that um we're we're just going to since he's like the 80s archetype of the teen movie we're going to bring up your favorite man in the world mr john hughes Ugh. i i know <laughs> so pretty in pink is a gross out like male sex comedy masquerading as like a teen girl movie you mean 16 candles yes 16 yes. candles <laughs> yeah but this movie is kind of the opposite where it's like, oh, this is a, you know, a gross out male sex movie, 
but it's actually secretly a like a soft like considerate respectful feminine movie yes i agree and that's so weird especially because you know the first 30 minutes of this movie you you have no inkling where this movie's going to go in the first hour of this movie you don't think where this movie is going to go there's absolutely no way and then uh i guess spoilers for everybody what ends up happening with Karen is that uh, Rick gets her pregnant and Gary pays for an abortion for her. It's got nothing to do with you. I saw you two arguing in there. It's over between us, so it doesn't matter. So why are you crying then? Look, I'll be all right. Relax. You know how couples have their moments cool off i know it don't worry about it i really don't care what he does you will get over i'm i'm pregnant (laughs) don't worry it's gonna be all right go on listen to me I want you to get yourself together. And, uh, and don't breathe the word of this to anyone. I'm gonna take care of this, understand? I'm gonna help you. And there's having this moment where, like, post-abortion, they're, like, hanging out at his grandma's house, and she's sleeping and like her shirt rode up a little bit and he pulls it down because he's just being like super pleasant and super nice and respectful. And the fact that he may or may not be gay also might lay into why he's not sexualizing her body. But uh, I look over at BJ and go, oh, this is like uh, this is like Ben Folds five brick, but with a happy ending. Like she's not a brick and he's drowning slowly. This is so nice. <laughs> and then... Hold on to your hat. <laughs> the most unnecessarily sudden, <laughs> jarring, sad ending happens. And uh, the the sad ending is that Gary spends the rest of his pizza delivery money to get a necklace engraved for his girlfriend, as he believes, for her birthday and shows up at her birthday party only to find her locking lips with Rick in the kitchen. And then he just leaves and he gets in his car and he cries and the movie ends. That's it. fucking ends. They scroll credits beside him so we get a clear shot of Gary fucking crying for the duration of the credits. It's so sad. Without question, the most bonkers ass decision a filmmaker has ever made and i'm saying that as somebody who actively watches andy milligan movies this <laughs> is fucking insane i i every time i've seen this movie i walk away shaking my head going what the fuck <laughs> why would you ever do this oh. uh, last night i have to tell you guys what happens or not last night it was a few nights ago we're watching the movie, and Cash likes this movie. He's like, fuck yeah, I'll watch it again. So I turn it on, and Roxy was doing stuff, and she comes out to wind down, and she comes – no shit. She comes in, 
The only she so this movie, like you were saying, Harmony, nothing in the first hour indicates where this is going. It doesn't happen until the third act, and honestly, happens within the last twenty five minutes of the movie. Uh When the movie starts to take shape in this like kind of dark, heartbreaking, beautiful story, but uh, Roxy comes in and sits down. (laughs) This is my daughter, Roxy. Uh, for for your listeners, and she uh, they, wait they you they you've mentioned her on the show, so oh yeah, they, yeah they've heard her name. Um, she sits down and she watches, and it's through this whole abortion thing, and you know she sees like how sweet Gary's being, and she's he, she's like that's so nice, you know she's a little girl, she she's eight, but she's somewhat worldly for an eight year old. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ending happens, and she goes, <laughs> she goes, that's it. <laughs> and she starts to well up. She goes, he paid for her fucking abortion. <laughs> and here's the thing. I had the exact same reaction when the credits start to roll. I just like lurch back in the couch and go, that's it. That's how it ends. <laughs> it's fucking wild. It is. And you can't sit back as a filmmaker and you you have no justified way of going, I don't know why this didn't do well. We followed Porky's into the market. We beat Fast Times at Ridgemont High to the theater. What went wrong? The part (laughs) where there's nothing good coming from this story. That's what went wrong. Uh, So I did some research because, again, I I needed to know. (laughs) And I found an interview with Diane Franklin that was printed in Steel Notes magazine. Originally, and then uh, repurposed for the internet, which is very mm. kind. Mm-hmm. And they're talking with Diane uh, Diane about this, and she is like so excited to talk about this, which makes me really happy. <laughs> she's like, she's like, oh, I love this question. On the surface, version reads as softcore titillation. It lures in the male teen audience with the promise of nudity, drugs, and sex. That would definitely be enough to bring in an audience. And then we discover more things about it. Like this is an 80s time capsule with colorful dress styles and awesome music and culture, including cocaine use and abortion (laughs) practices and upbeat energy. That said, why would he make the ending so depressing? And she goes on to talk about how this is, you know, based on his life. This is something that really happened. And... Essentially, Golan and Globus assumed that American audiences would share the same cultural sensibilities that good things and bad things happen in life. We just accept it. No judgment, no moral, just move forward. And as Boas has said in many interviews regarding that last scene of Virgin, he defends it by saying, yeah, well, that's life. Yeah, see, that's where Golan and Globus made a mistake. Americans, we're weak shit. We are are weak, (laughs) soft, fucking frail animals. We don't have that sort of fortitude in us. That was a huge misstep on their part. They needed one American producer working for them to go, no, we aren't, we are not built for that guys. This, <laughs> we are fucking soft weenies. We, we can't hang. Oh, and- but I, I love it though. Cause this movie that is suddenly takes these weird turns that don't feel like they belong in this movie. Yeah. Makes this movie feel less like a movie and that makes it better and more distinct. Yeah. So like it's I'm like not going to say I enjoy that ending but I feel like it's a good ending. Yeah, well it is in in the in the trajectory of cinema I think it is a great ending. Like because you know think of like really intense good movies they don't have happy endings. I I like I reference the movie Martyrs a lot. 
as a as a great example of a movie that is has it has something satisfying to it because the ending isn't a good one. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. There's nothing positive to be taken from it, other than like eh, this this whole thing is finite. This ends. Life ends, and that's a fucking like. I think that if if there's anything a teenager could learn from that, it's that life is shitty <laughs> and it's really fucking hard sometimes, especially when you're a teenager. You're trying to figure the world out and you feel like the world is against you. And going back to, you know, like uh, like some of the tropes that we've noticed about Gary and Ricky and who the the actors are, you know, as real people, I I, I think back to, you know, what it how difficult it must be to be a teenager that's that's gay and mm-hmm. and having to hide that or feeling like you feeling like you have to hide that feeling like you can't be yourself mm-hmm. and that heaviness and that darkness it doesn't always result in like yeah i paid for my my buddy's ex-girlfriend's abortion and now she's back with him like that's maybe an inflated version but that sad reality, like we don't address that a lot. We try to avoid it because it makes us fucking miserable. And to to Boaz's uh, credit, he addressed that shit head on. Uh-huh. How many teen? Not a lot of teen movies are willing to do that. This isn't a teen movie. I gotta stop saying it's a teen movie. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it is. It's just, it's it's a very challenging film for teens. I think it's more challenging, especially due to where we've evolved since the eighties. I mean, this is a, this movie's like forty years old almost. Like, yeah, it's, it's been a while, and a lot has changed. I think mm-hmm. if we were looking at this from the lens of the year it came out, we we would be like, oh no, that's a teen movie. But in this interview with Diane Franklin, she continues to talk about Karen, and I love the way that she describes her. She goes, "I always imagined that Karen is like a feather in the wind." Whatever guy was nice to her in the moment, she gravitated to. So when Rick gives her attention, she turns to him. When Gary helps her out, she goes with him. So when we find Rick kissing Karen in the kitchen, I always felt like he's the one who made the move and she gave in. She's not two-faced or manipulative. She just simply allowed it to happen. Then Gary walks in. She feels bad, but she doesn't have the strength to step away, so she just waits. This is the point in an American story that the good guy stands up to the bad guy and gets the girl, right? But in Virgin, this does not happen. Gary's hurt and walks out. So mm-hmm. as an American audience, we have this conflicting feeling. I thought this was the last American Virgin. Why doesn't he stand up and fight? And then when Gary walks away and crying and the credits roll, the American audience gets that punch in the heart of just, bitch, I can yeah. hear it now. It's not Karen that they're mad at. It's the where is my happily ever after? Where's my uplifting message about never giving up? Why did the bad guy win? This film hits us in our core beliefs, but that's what makes Virgin memorable because it runs so much deeper than just titillating teen entertainment. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, that. Jesus Christ! I mean, that's that's as poetic as it gets as far as describing Last American Virgin. But this movie's a lot heavier than I I think people realize. I think the title would mm-hmm. indicate, you know, like oh, what's this about? It's a it's a really like it's kind of a fucking heavy movie, especially that third act, man. Yeah, I feel like even if you watched it, just going by the title or even probably watching the trailer, uh, yeah. it is it is giving you a very different idea of what this film is going to be. Oh, the and, is so misleading. God. Oh, I'm I can only imagine. But yeah, any I feel like a lot of like especially teen boys who would have gone to the theater to watch this 
mm-hmm. probably would have been uh, upset by that third act and yeah. not really wanted to uh, recommend or revisit this movie. Yeah, I can't imagine. Like, you're going in because you're thinking it's going to be a TNA movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're confronted with reality. <laughs> That's, I mean, it doesn't get much more exploitation uh, movie making than that. Like, mm-hmm. you titillate and then you punch them in the stomach with something else. Like, that's, uh, there's a movie, a dri- an old drive in movie that uh, I highly recommend to people to see called The Pink Angels. Uh, and it's, it's set. It's in the '70s, and it would probably like Nixon era is what it's supposed to be portraying, or like Vietnam era America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about, and it's at the height of these these biker movies uh, in America. And he, it's this gang of of gay bikers riding across the country. And uh, I don't want to spoil the ending, but it it the trailer gives you this kind of like, oh, these guys are silly and wild. The ending of this movie is so fucking like blunt force to the head shit that I I still to this day am and blown away that that the movie let alone that the movie was made but also like the way they chose to end it is so abrasive and I can't think of anything more succinct to it than the last American virgin I I often compare the two because they drew you in with like, oh, look at this. This is campy. And then they're like, no, we're going to fuck you up real bad. <laughs> this, I, I think that my my opinion too on this ending has evolved over time. Sure. In that the first time I saw this, I, it, years and years ago, I can't even imagine how long it's been. Mm-hmm. And I always remember being like, oh, I can't believe that she would do that. But at the same time though, I now think about the fact that one of the main reasons that I stayed in a relationship much longer than I should have was mm-hmm. because my partner at the time took care of me when I had cancer. And here's the thing. You don't get a cookie for that. You don't get a no. cookie for doing a nice thing and helping a girl who needs to get an abortion. That doesn't entitle you to get what you want. And, you know, in in rewatching after the the abortion happens and Gary is you know taking care of Karen while she recovers. Uh-huh. He confesses to her that he loves her. Uh-huh. Right before he says that, she says, "You've been such a good friend to me." Uh-huh. Yes. He then drops yeah. the bomb of like, "I'm in love with you," and she does kiss him. But you can tell Gary tries to go for a little bit more, and she pulls away from him and then gives him like. The only way you can describe it is like a bro hug. Like you hug. Yeah. She hugs him and like gives him like that little squeeze of like, thanks for all your help, but no. So she, without explicitly saying it, has been pretty upfront. Like you are my friend and I appreciate you and thank you. Mm -hmm. And Gary's the one who sort of read into this as like, oh, well, that's my girlfriend now. And I think that that's the part where this movie becomes so important because there are these moments that happen in our lives with romantic partners or even just with our friends where we have these breakdowns in communication because we assume things of the other person based mm-hmm. on like what we've given them or what we've done for them or what we think we're entitled to or owed. And this movie 
is basically like, yeah, you don't get what you want all the time, even if you did quote unquote the right thing. Sometimes doing the right thing is the bare minimum. And yeah, it's super nice that like he he does this for her, but she also doesn't ask him to. Mm-hmm. No. He offers it. No. And for what it's worth, Gary spends the entire movie biting his tongue. He spends the entire duration of this story not expressing his feelings to her. He did that to himself. She doesn't owe him shit. Mm-hmm. And when and when she when he paid for her abortion, he helped, he took care of her as she was recuperating. Very sweet. He's preparing to tell her he loves her. She I feel like Karen preemptively knew it and made a point to say you're a great friend. Mm-hmm. And he persisted on with I'm in love with you. That doesn't mean shit. She doesn't owe you anything. There were no deals made because you didn't approach her the first time you saw her. Mm-hmm. You you looked at her awkwardly from across the room. That's on you. That's not Karen's fault. Mm-hmm. You, cho- you chose that. And by the way, you didn't have to take care of her. You did. No one's going to congratulate you for doing something decent. That's not how life works. Great that you did. You don't get congratulated for doing the right thing all the time. Sorry. And no. And Karen's not a villain. Karen's not a villain in this movie. No. No, not at all. And I think that that's like a really important distinction of this movie, especially for like the format of our thing, is that the whole plot is dictated by the autonomy of women. And Karen is not susceptible to one thing that we see so common in 80s movies is the grand romantic gesture. Like, just mm-hmm. because you make the grand romantic gesture of, like, pawning off your stereo and borrowing money to pay for her abortion, like, you're not yeah. owed anything. This isn't your holding the boombox say anything moment. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't mean you suddenly, like, have achieved y- your thing. And Karen's also not the villain because, like, you can see in that moment where they are just silently staring at each other at, right after she kisses Rick in the kitchen she is visibly upset. Like, she doesn't want to hurt him, but, like, no, it's kind no. of unavoidable because of expectations he set up for himself. Yes, yes, I agree completely. And and she also, like, we're, we, I think the, the other problem, too, I think there's a hole in this with the third act, too, where Ricky gets off scot-free here. And mm-hmm. Ricky's a piece of shit. Uh-huh. But he, he knew what he wanted. He wanted to fuck her. And that was pretty much his sole, like, that was his only goal, was to fuck her. He wanted to fuck Karen. And he did. And then what did he do? He ditched her. And that's, he got her pregnant, and he, you know, he he kicked off. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm going on a ski trip or whatever. And this, and she's left here in this shitty situation. She felt desperate. I, You know, you get the impression, like, she obviously hasn't talked to her family about this. Mm -hmm. And this guy comes along, and he's willing to help. If you're desperate, you're going to let him. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that still doesn't entitle you to love and matrimony and, you know, riding off in the sunset together. And, you know, you're like if he's going to be mad at anybody, his anger should be should be pointed at Ricky because Ricky's a fucking scumbag and Ricky got away with it. And yeah. then he got the girl. 
Yeah, and the, but this is like a theme for all the women in this movie is they are yeah. all using these three boys for something they want, you know, with more nefarious means than others. But whether it's like they want drugs or they want to get paid or she's just like a lonely Charo-esque nymphomaniac. Yes. Like that they're all using these these boys. And for some reason now we're throwing like this very harsh blame onto Karen just because like there's an emotional center there rather than yeah. like the passing phase of like silly comedy. Where have you been? I was out on the football field. By yourself? No. With Karen. She's right over there. Just you two. Of course. Hey, couldn't wait around for you to give me the key to your grandmother's house, could I? Meaning what? Meaning that I was the first one to get to Miss Thing over there. What? I fucked Karen. You're full of shit. You're lying. What do you want me to do? Show you an instant replay? I wanted to read uh, what Mike has to say about the end of this movie from, of course, Teen Movie Hell. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, Gary finding out what's going on and then says, Gary is crushed and so are we. He shuffles back to his pizza wagon and starts the engine. Just Once by James Ingram swells on the soundtrack, crooning about how I did my best, but I guess my best wasn't good enough. The camera settles on Gary's face at the steering wheel as he drives away. Slowly, horribly, tears trickle forth. His lip quivers. He cries more. With the shock impact of a thousand horror movies, the end credits roll up alongside the close-up of a weeping, broken teenager. And with that... The Last American Virgin defied expectations and became an instant marker of what was possible in even the raunchiest end of the teen sex comedy genre. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And then, of course, because it's Mike, he then follows it up with, hey, and also this movie's gay, and here's why, which is <laughs> yeah, <yep>. great. <laughs> and and he is 100% accurate on that. I, I, think, uh, I think that there's a... I, I do think eventually this movie, as we've seen with so many movies from the 80s, it will find an audience who mm-hmm. who I hope see it for 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 what it is. And even just us sitting here talking about it, like I'm seeing more value in it. And I've seen this movie several times. I've, mm-hmm. I own the goddamn Blu-ray. I mean, it must mean something to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and sitting here now, I kind of realize like there's a lot of storyline here that is unapologetic in how it presents life and painful situations and reality. It's wrapped up in tits and farts and dicks, but some of the better things in life are wrapped up in those things. Uh (laughs) I would say, I think what I respect the most about this movie is that the first half of this movie or first two thirds of this movie really feels like this fantastical and idealized way that so many teens look at the world. Sure. And that latter third is where we're grounded in reality. And I think yeah. that's really important. And I think that juxtaposition is jarring. Yes. But I never th- feel like this movie talks down to its audience. No. Yeah. I I'm with you there. I, I think, uh, I think that it, it's trying to, if anything, it's trying to corral the audience in. Mm-hmm. 
because I think it does want to tell you a story and I think it wants you to it it wants to engage you in like does this make sense do you get like what this guy's going through I I don't th- I don't know that he was I don't know that he wrote this with that idea in mind of like we're going to we're going to talk to teenagers in this movie we're going to come down to their level but we're going to slowly bring them up with us to talk mm-hmm. about the painful shit I don't know if that was his intention in in how it's written, but it certainly feels like that's what the movie does. And at the very least, it's capable of doing it. And I think this movie failing in America, like failing in America and thriving so much around the rest of the world in as far as how the the original goes, I think is really telling about how we socialize teens, what we tell them to expect, as well as what language we're using to speak with cinema. Yes. And uh, for that alone, I, I've got to pay my respects to The Last American Virgin. Like, it is it is such a great choice for us to talk about. But I got to say, like, you were right in saying that this is the movie that you wanted to pick to honor Mike because this is... This is a Mike McPadden movie where it is it is yeah. subverting all expectations while at the same time appreciating all of the stuff that everyone else says is unworthy yeah. of acclaim. Yes, I agree completely. I think it is I think it embodies what Mike loved about fucked up movies. <laughs> 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 because it's very like it it the way that movie ends is like I you you know you were here for this. Uh, I, sorry if you don't like how it ended, but you know I'm showing you reality. And like you said, and by the way, it's a very gay movie, and I'm going to tell you how gay it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I I think I think in the long run, this can be viewed as less of like a teen sex comedy and more like. This is one time that somebody tried to present reality to the teen market and it didn't necessarily work at the time, but we can watch it 40, 50 years later and go, wow, that's fucking edgy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, something I do want to make sure we point out when we talk about Diane Franklin too, the same year in one year, she had the last American Virgin and Amityville two come out. Yes, she did. <laughs> so she had a real, she had a hell of an 82. I will go on record as saying Amityville 2 is my favorite of the Amityville franchise. I don't know if I could say that's my favorite, but it's it's pretty high up there. You're right say. not to. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, there's like 7,000 of those movies because you can't copyright Amityville. Nope, it's just a name. <laughs> Did you know anyone can make it Amityville? <laughs> I I think uh I, I think this movie is uh is wild. <laughs> I think it's not for anybody, but it's kind of for everybody. And I, I do hope, like I, I'm sitting here hoping like I, I would love for I would love for the LGBTQ community to take this movie. <laughs> That's what I want. I want them to take it and go, no, we're going to talk to you guys about Ricky and Gary. Oh yeah. That would be the community that would, could yeah. would gather this. Like how many times do I see memes going around on Twitter where it's like, yeah, a queer person will go, Oh my God, this movie meant so much to me. And then it's like an absolutely awful movie that no one should watch. Yeah. This is, this is like that, but actually a good movie. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love this movie. I like for for all of its chaos, I fucking love The Last American Virgin. It's it's ridiculous, but I do love it. Well, Harmony? Yes. <laughs> the time has come. Ha <laughs> come. The Last American Virgin <laughs> is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the card back? I'm glad that this is a a yes from me, considering that I, I bought this movie for this episode. <laughs> but the uh, the thing that I kind of think about is that I process most things in life through music, and discussing this movie in, in an encapsulated way of new wave music, I, I assume that we're all familiar with the music video for AHA's Take On Me, right? Mm. Yes. Yes. Are we are we all familiar with the uh, follow up single "The Sun Always Shines" on TV? I uh, yes, but most so, people I would assume are not. Famous. No, probably not. But here's why that's interesting: is the the beautiful comic book love story of "Take on Me." Yeah, uh, that couple breaks up at the beginning of their next music video, <laughs> and then it's a sad song about how the sun always shines on TV, but like life is sad, and that's just the way it is sometimes. And that was yeah. the last time AHA ever sniffed the top 40 in the U.S. And then they went on to sell like 80 million albums in the rest of the world. That's very American. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's kind of how we like to look at our uh, like little uh, kind of everything being wrapped up with a pretty little bow for our stories, particularly our love stories in America. Yeah. And that's not life. No. And I, uh, I really like that about this movie is that you, this movie could have ended, I don't know, 20 minutes earlier and been a different movie. This movie mm-hmm. could have had a different ending and been a different movie, but that's not always how life is. And uh, yeah, like, fuck it. Buckle up, buttercup. We're going for a ride while we <laughs> drive around at night crying and singing songs in our car, possibly. In Victor's stolen car. <laughs> Victor gets done so dirty. God damn, Victor ate shit the whole movie. Yeah, it's because he's the nerdy kid. He's, which, a, yeah. he's a nerdy kid with a huge dick, which means yes. we need to steal his car and drive <laughs> it into the ocean. Into the fucking ocean. <laughs> what are they doing? Oh, God. Oh, especially oh. the setup of like, oh, be careful. I just had it painted. I'm like, they're going to fuck his car up so fast. <laughs> yeah, you, you basically ask them, like, will you drive this into the ocean? I just got a paint job. <laughs> Well, Wes, I'm so glad that you were able to come and talk with us about this just bananas movie. For our listeners who may not know where to find you, where can people find you or where do you want them to find you? Well, <laughs> they can find me on uh, – I will tell them uh, if if they w- could be so generous, we'd love it if they would check out Why Did We Ever Meet. Uh we're on every Wednesday at 11 a.m. wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, we are a part of the Jabroni U Network, who are big. There's, we are uh, staunch supporters of uh, our network. Loves this ends at prom. We, but uh, yeah, you can find why do we ever meet wherever you get your podcasts from. We are on Twitter at WDWEM Podcasts, and you can find us on Instagram at why did we ever meet and you can also find us on tiktok at why did we ever meet podcast where uh we do dumb shit and uh there's videos of our pets and me yelling about perverts that i encounter in the world (laughs) (laughs) yeah for those who uh i mean we 
we love the show, obviously, because you're family. But mm-hmm. I love when people listen to the show for the first time because it usually opens with you, like, calling your wife a whore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This week you were talking about queefs. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. We, we had, had – I don't know how we got on the conversation of queefs, but, like, Ashley and – if you listen to the show, you guys know this. She likes to hit record as I'm in the middle of something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's always the wrong, like, it's always inappropriate. And it always is me going, are you fucking recording? Like, every time. <laughs> every time. Yeah, it's But we, yeah, we were talking delight. about, qu- have you guys ever used the word merple? <laughs> um, probably not since, like, junior high. <laughs> so, like, everyone says queef. Like, there's, there's a place in, in our world for the word merple. I mean, I'm a fan of how it sounds. I assume that that's a synonym for queef, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, my my brother at one point made up a band name that he he wanted to call a band Queefy Merple and the Pussy Farts, and <laughs> and that is now like that has withstood the test of time with our entire friend group, our family. Like, it's lasted for like. Since high school, so we're in, in twenty plus years of this shit of queefy Merple and the pussy farts. If if someone's talking about a band, like who is that? My go to, it's queefy Merple and the pussy farts. <laughs> what? That is very much a your brother joke. Yes, and that's so. So if you ever want to know what happens on why do we ever meet, you get you get gems like queefy Merple and the pussy farts. Ah. <laughs> uh. We love you so much, like the whole family. We love the Jabroni U network because there's a lot of podcasts on there that are so great that, like, I don't listen to that many podcasts, but I listen to a lot of Jabroni U. So the love yeah. is mutual. Yeah, y'all are they, great. They, they, uh, they, we're all the whole, the whole crew. Like, there's a lot of podcasts on that network, and everybody, everybody loves. That's we see you got this ends at prom and the PWT cast and Marty and Sarah. Like that, that's extended family. And everybody, it's just, it's nice that we're all, there's all these podcasts doing different things, but everybody is like, man, it's not a competition. We're all fucking supporting each other and proud of Mm -hmm. each other. And, and I think that's, I think that's really fucking cool. I think that's, it's a creative space where people aren't being shitheads and trying to one up each other. Agreed. It's pretty nice. I yeah. mean, and and speaking of support, because I'm great at transitions, you can support <laughs> this podcast. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. We are also currently awaiting 10 more reviews on Apple iTunes. Once we get to 100, we're going to be doing a giveaway. The giveaway will include really awesome clueless art and a shirt from Super Yaki and some other stuff that we're going to throw in there because we love people and it'll be super, super fun. But we're not going to start doing that until we get, uh, get to that 100th rating. Make it happen, people. <laughs> you can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where are you? I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocitraptor underscore trap underscore tour. I'm getting vaccinated tomorrow, so I'll, I'll go outside and maybe I'll actually have stuff worth taking pictures of. <laughs> Finally put something on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't put anything on there since I started talking about Yu-Gi-Oh! one time, and then that's pretty much just where I left it. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title for our theme song. Harmony, do you have a cool music band thing this week? Uh, I have a couple. I've always got some, but... Wes, you listen to our podcast, so you know that I've been recently plugging uh, like cool indie bands. You've got yeah. your ear to the ground. Any uh, any bands you'd like to plug that people should check out? 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, because I'm an old, I'm an, uh, what I've learned on TikTok is I'm an elder emo. Uh, <laughs> I'm so old it was called post-hardcore. Uh, uh, the, the band, uh, the band Quicksand, who are a staple in my life, dropped a new song out of fucking nowhere. And I'm very excited about it. So check out, uh, check out the new single from Quicksand. And then, uh, the band Fiddlehead, who are really fucking good. I highly recommend. They've got a few new tracks out from their new album. Go check out the new stuff from Fiddlehead. Okay, I look forward to that because I've not heard of either of those, but I always like your music (laughs) recommendations, so I'm sure that I will enjoy them. I hope you do. All right, friends. That takes us out on The Last American Virgin. Thank you for listening, and save that last dance for us. I did my best, but I guess my best wasn't good enough. Cause here we are back where we were before Seems nothing ever changes We're back to being strangers Wondering if we ought to stay Or head on out the door Just once Can we feel This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.